the handout that I've, I've given to you uh, gives the material from last week. We're going to be with Abraham and Isaac uh, today. Uh, you know, Abraham's got two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, uh, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons. Now, uh, the handout that I gave to you from last week, uh, the creation account, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. You've got that? Did, you didn't get one. We need to get you a handout back there to pass it forward. Uh, I didn't go over uh, 1, 1 to 2, 3 because we spent most of our time on uh, 1 to 11. But Genesis 1, you've got two parallel panels, three days of uh, forming and three days of filling. And then the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day. He sanctified it. And you can even see the literary structure. Uh, it's been set apart. So you've got, uh, there's a very clear literary, artistic structure in Genesis 1, which in my mind, you see you've got the, the heavens are formed and then the heavens are filled, day 1 and day 4. The sea and sky are formed, day 5, the sea and sky are filled. Day 3, the dry land is formed, day 6, the dry land is filled. Uh, it's, it's very symmetrical, uh, very orderly, it's very artistic. Uh, it presents itself not as a scientific account of creation, uh, but as a literary, theological account. So I think that should give us some clues in terms of how much we're trying to tease out or unpack out of Genesis 1 uh, in terms of fighting with science and things like this. I don't think that there's uh, that, that we should try to be arguing you know, uh, against Genesis 1 versus the way science is describing things because I think they're telling two different stories. You can see this. It's more of a literary account. Now, last week we spent our time in Genesis uh, 1 to 11 or 2, 4 to 11, 26. Where we saw the two parallel panels from Adam to Noah and from Noah to Abraham. We went over that, so I've uh, given this to you. Okay. Now, if you take the flip side of the page, and I won't, we won't spend any time on this today, but I thought I'd throw this in for you. Within Genesis uh, 1 to 11, you've got two major narratives, the flood narrative and then the Tower of Babel narrative. Uh, and you can see the, uh, this uh, symmetry that we'll be talking about today uh, many of the uh, uh, biblical narratives are very symmetrical. Okay, Genesis 1 to 11, you've got two parallel panels from Adam to Noah and from Noah to Abraham, uh, whereas Adam was commissioned and disobeyed, Noah was commissioned and obeyed. Um, but uh, within the uh, uh, flood narrative, Genesis 6 to 9, you've got this tremendous symmetry. I mean, isn't that just almost breathtaking? Uh, how symmetrical that is. And you can see the flood waters coming, you know, the flood waters rising, and there's a turning point, and the flood waters uh, abate. Uh, in the hinge point is the most theological statement in the entire narrative, God remember Noah. Okay. Uh, now, by the way, interesting, uh, any of you that uh, may have taken religion classes at university or, or literature of the Bible classes at university or you're sending your kids off to college, a lot of critical scholars are going to argue that uh, the Noah narrative, Genesis 6 to 9, is a hodgepodge, a collection of different sources. Okay, but that looks rather unified to me, doesn't it? Uh, the repetitions, the critical scholars also often look at these repetitions and they say, well, this is you know, evidence of different sources. Well, the repetitions are the mirror images of an artistic literary unity. Okay. Um, now, the Tower of Babel, see, you've got the very same thing, this, this, this symmetry. All the earth had one language. They're gathered together. They said to one another, come, let's make bricks. Let's build a city for ourselves, a city and a tower. Turning points to the Lord came down to see what they're doing. He saw the city and the tower that the humans had built. And Yahweh, God, the, the divine counsel, said, said, come, let's confuse everyone, the language of his neighbor from there, the language of the whole earth. And so you can see that that's being very symmetrically structured. Now, if you turn the page, uh, the material we're going to look at today, trying to help you see the uh, the, the 
forced for the trees, both the Abraham narrative and the Jacob narrative uh, are structured symmetrically as well. And you can just see this. We begin uh, with the genealogy A of Terah, then God calls Abraham, which is the inauguration of a spiritual odyssey, 12, 1 to 9. We have a sojourn in Egypt. If you remember, there was a famine in the land, so they went down to Egypt. Sarah was in a foreign palace, and the ordeal ends in peace. Abraham and Lot then separate. There was uh, not enough land for the two of them, so they separate. Lot takes the good land. Uh, Then there's war uh, against Sodom, and Lot is taken captive, and Abraham goes and rescues Lot. Lot took the good land, but he found himself in a bad situation. Then God makes a covenant with Abraham uh, about the land, Genesis 15. Then you have the announcement uh, that Ishmael will be born, the annunciation of Ishmael, uh, the promise that Ishmael is going to be born. Uh, and then um, uh, Sarah is rebuked. Uh, in the center, you've got uh, this statement about the covenant. Uh, the covenant's conditioned upon obedience and circumcision. Then you get the annunciation of Isaac. God promises uh, it's not going to be through uh, Hagar. It's going to be through uh, 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 Sarah. Uh, and Sarah's blessed. And then the, uh, the covenant's reaffirmed uh, with Abraham. Then Sodom and Gomorrah are now destroyed. Whereas... Sodom and Gomorrah had been conquered before. Now they're destroyed. Uh, and, of course, uh, Abraham prays, and uh, Lot is rescued once again. The first time Lot is rescued is by Abraham. Now Lot is rescued by the angels, but because Abraham had prayed, uh, you won't destroy for, for even ten righteous. Well, ten righteous can't be found, but those that were righteous were rescued out. Then there's a sojourn not in Egypt, but in Gerar, land of the Philistines. Sarah finds herself in foreign palace, and the ordeal ends in peace again. Then Abraham and Ishmael separate instead of Abraham and Lot. Uh, and then, uh, whereas God originally on point B, God called Abraham, now God tests Abraham. Originally, God had called Abraham and given him a promise that he should respond in faith and obedience. Now, Abra- God puts Abraham's faith and obedience to the test, and he passes the test. And this is when God calls him to offer up Isaac. And he passes the test, and God says at that point, Because you obeyed me, I will certainly fulfill my promises to you. And then it ends with the genealogy. Now you have the same kind of structure uh, with the Jacob narrative. Now we're going we're to focus in in just a minute on the, uh, the Abraham material that we just uh, walked over. But does this kind of help you get a, you kind of get a feel this way, right? Now one of the questions that people ask when they see this kind of symmetry, it's breathtaking in the, the artistry that this is put together, right? And people begin to wonder, well wait a minute, this, this looks almost too good. Uh, is this the product of a fertile imagination that somebody's playing games with the text to make it look this way? Uh, or uh, uh, if the narrator is doing this, some people look at it and they say, uh, gosh, that looks like that, is that forced? Uh, I mean, you know, really, do people really tell stories that way? Is that nice literary unity? Uh, some people even suggest that, uh, or wonder, you know, is this, this almost looks like it's too good to be true. I mean, is there some element of fiction here that they're kind of creating? Well, no, none of that. None of that. Because this is the way that we all tell stories. If you take what this, this symmetrical structure that, that we display vertically and you turn it on the side, what, in effect, what you have is a narrative plot. Okay? Uh, th- th- this is simply a uh, this is simply a uh, vertical way of looking at a horizontal plot. Now let's just talk for a moment. And this is this is what you're saying. It's not so much what we call a chiasm or just a, a literary artistry. It it's a way that we tell stories. Uh, any time that you tell a story, uh, any book that you read, any show that you see, 
even on theater, on the stage, biblical narratives, English narratives, uh, Russian narratives. It's a universal in storytelling that there's symmetry in the way we tell a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the beginning and the end tend to correspond. Issues get, uh, get presented at the beginning that get resolved in the end. And in the middle, there's rising action, turning point, and falling action. Does that make sense? Okay. So what you typically get, whether or not you have seven elements or 20 elements, in case you have subplots, there are seven basic elements to any story. Uh, whether you're reading a novel or re- whether you're reading scripture. Whether you're reading a short chapter, a short episode in the Bible, or whether you're reading a longer narrative cycle. Uh, they tend, or book as a whole, narrative book as a whole. Uh, they tend to, to do this. By the way, even human history, even biblical history, you can map it out this way. Now, what we tip, and by the way, this would be a not, not a bad thing for you to do when you're reading narrative in the Bible. Pull out this chart and just ask yourself, where am I at? Uh, on the narrative plot. We sometimes get lost. What's the point? What am I supposed to be learning? Well, I, first of all, I need to read this as a story. Now, the Bible, it, it's God's Word. It's inspired. It's biblical revelation. It's jam-packed with theology and teaching and application. But it's also got genre. God revealed the theology and the truth through the vehicle of genre. We've got poetry. We've got narratives. We've got proverbs, different genre. Part of the thing we need to do is understand what it is that we're reading so we can read the Bible for all that it's worth and understand how to read it the right way. So when reading narrative, I'm reading it as story. And that doesn't mean it's not true by story, just that this is recounting the mighty acts of God in the past. The great thing about our God, he's not just some myth uh, that poets are writing about or are making things up. The scripture is claiming God acted in history. And so it's telling us all these mighty acts of God in the past, and so of course it's going to use this historical vehicle. Now, when anybody tells a story, recounts the past, uh, we typically have a prologue. Uh, what happens in a prologue, uh, typically? This is the beginning scene, introductory scene. What, who do you meet in the prologue? The characters, and particularly the what? The main character, uh, who's going to be your protagonist. Okay? Uh, then not only do you meet the character, the main character, you also get introduced to the what? To the what? Sometimes the villain, the setting. Okay, we get the setting. Uh, who this is, when it's taking place, where it's taking place. Okay? Because you're getting invested. You're getting oriented and you get invested. You, you like the main character. Okay, now in long narratives, long novels, usually the whole first chapter is about characterization, explaining the character to you, gets you invested, you like this person, they want you to be interested, and you get oriented. Uh, long novels tend to give you a lot. Biblical narratives tend to be short won't give you very much about the main character except what you need to know. So, for example, um, uh, we are told of Eglon. One thing about Eglon, he's fat. One thing about uh, uh, Bathsheba, she was beautiful, right? Uh, And so you get, was that important for that narrative? Okay. Uh, Eglon being fat, if you remember, Ehud snuck in and put the dagger in his belly, and the reason he, and, uh, he uh, Ehud was left-handed. Was that important? Or actually, he was crippled in his right hand. He was left-handed, closed of his right hand, crippled in his left hand. Was that important? Well, yeah, he was able to sneak the sword in. Usually, they would check for a sword or knife over here. He's crippled in his right hand. They probably don't think he's a mighty warrior. He's able to sneak a dagger in. And, you know, he's 
cripple. You don't have to worry about him, and he's the guy. That, so you learn one thing, critical thing about the character. Noah, or Abraham, what do we learn about him? He's old, uh, and he is the uh, descendant of Terah, who was the descendant of Noah, the direct descendant of, of Adam and all this thing. Now, next, next thing that you get is what we call the catalytic event, the thing that sets everything in motion. This is either the problem or the challenge. And somebody said before, this is where you, you're, you meet the what? The villain. You either meet the villain or the villainous situation or the challenge. And this is what drives everything forward. So whenever you're reading a biblical narrative, you need to be asking yourself at one point, where's my prologue? Uh, then what's the challenge or what's the problem? Okay? It'll either be a problem to overcome, a temptation to, uh, 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 to overcome, a challenge to faith and obedience, or some kind, of a, some kind of a villain. Then you get rising action. This is where the plot thickens. You've got subplot. You've got development here at this point. Uh, uh, there's imp- impediments for the main character to be able to uh, solve this problem or, or respond to it. Or sometimes in longer narratives, you get these subplots to come in. And then at one point, you get the turning point. And this is when the main character, the protagonist, uh, forms a plan how to solve the problem or makes progress to meet the goal. Sometimes the main character, uh, the protagonist, is not able to solve the problem himself. He has to depend upon God or somebody that God raises up, in which case you've got an agent. Okay? There's an agent who helps to solve, the hero of the story that may come through. Sometimes the main character may be able to solve the problem by his faith, obedience, or wisdom. Sometimes he's a rock in a hard place. He cries out, and so God will intervene by God's word or God's work, or God will raise somebody else up to intervene for him. Book of Esther, a great example uh, that uh, God raises up Esther and Mordecai to, to deliver the Jews. Interesting book of Esther. God's name never, never, does never appear in the book of Esther, but you know God's operating behind the scenes the whole time. Okay, then the denouement or the consequences, this is when the plan gets put into effect and you start seeing everything move forward. There used to be a TV show that uh, sci-fi buffs no, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Any of you used to watch that? What did Captain Picard always say at this point? They would make the plan and he would say what? Make it so. Ma- make it so. See, make it so. Okay, we're going to put the plan into action. Very good. I knew there was always one person that knows Star Trek. And then you have the resolution. The resolution is the problem is solved or the goal is met or in some... And that's if it's, uh, uh, if it's a uh, heroic story. If it's a tragedy though, rather than the problem being solved, you have failure. The main character failed. And then it's a tragic. And you've got tragedy in the Bible, don't you? Where you've got main characters that Saul ends. He, he starts out good, he ends the tragic. Uh, Solomon ends tragic. David ends tragic. Matter of fact, most of the Bible, many, many people end tragically. Uh, but you, normally you're going to have uh, the problem and then the solution. In certain cases, men of faith, men and women of faith and obedience, wisdom, or God intervening to solve the problem. And then you have the epilogue. And what does the epilogue do? It creates closure. See, it creates closure. Uh, and so what, what you often are going to see is that literally the prologue and the epilogue are going to correspond to one another. Uh, uh, you've got the problem is introduced. The problem is resolved. You have rising action and falling action. action and here's your turning point. So you see that you've got symmetry, which is you turn, the, turn it on the side... This is what you have. So this is not, there's nothing forced or, or uh, fabricated here in the way the biblical narratives or narrators are telling the story. It's just the way we tell stories. Even you. If something happens to you during the day and you come home, tell your husband, tell your wife. 
you're going to start off saying, you're not just going to jump into the middle, but you're going to say, I was at work. That's my what? Prologue. And then something happened. My boss, somebody was unreasonable, and I thought, how in the world am I going to handle this? And to complicate matters, this came up. But I prayed to God, and God gave me wisdom, or or somebody came through unexpectedly uh, that I did not expect, and I, th- I could see I could see how I could see the light at the end of the tunnel, and lo and behold, God was able to solve my problem, or by my faith, my obedience, my wisdom to God. Praise God, He was able to get me through. I maintained my integrity, and I'm home to tell you about this. How was your day? Well, let me tell you about my day. And we go through that, don't we? Uh, your life is going through a series of these, right? And uh, we all are very selective in terms of how we read these. Now, if you have too many of these going on, by the way, then you start cracking up. And we can only handle, you know, one, two, or three of these things at once in our life. By the way, the Bible as a whole, if you map out the Bible as a whole, you have the prologue, which would be what? Creation. Then the catalytic event. Sin. And then you've got God's work in human history. Right? The redemptive plan, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenant. And then you have Christ. And then you've got the, the salvation has been provided. And finally, the resolution. We've got the reversal of the fall. We've got first garden, paradise lost, paradise restored, and then new creation. See? Look at Genesis, maps out this way, too. So, uh, just, you know, where are you at in your life? The things that you're going through, too. I mean, we, the lessons here. The characters are faced with problems. How do they respond to their problems? Giving us an uh, example how we should respond to our problems, too. Okay? Now, in terms of our, our narrative today, this understanding what we're doing here, then, looking at uh, the Abrahamic narrative, Genesis uh, 12 through 25, it helps us to uh, see the movement forward. Uh, helps us to better understand what's happening with, with these uh, 12, 13 chapters as a whole. Okay? And when we have the genealogy, we've got uh, the prologue. We're introduced to Abraham. Uh, and then the catalytic event, uh, this is on your third page, the catalytic event, I think, would be B, where God calls Abraham. Does that not make sense? God calls Abraham and he promises, I'm going to give you land, seed, and blessing. Now look with me at Genesis chapter 12. We're just going to highlight... Uh, just a couple of passages here in the Abrahamic narrative this morning. Try to help you see uh, the whole. Uh, the catalytic events that sets everything in motion. You're introduced at the end of chapter 11 to Abraham, where he's at, who he is. So you're oriented, kind of like him. Okay. Uh, and the catalytic event is that seemingly out of nowhere, God calls Abraham. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Uh, the Lord said to Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, and go to the land that I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who, tr- who curse you. And through you, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord commanded. Okay, we call this God's call to Abraham, the promise to Abraham. He's promising land, okay? seed, great descendants. Uh, he's going to be a source of blessing. In terms of how this fits in Genesis as a whole, we've got curse. Humanity's been under a curse. And now we've got God's first movement to do what? To restore blessing. Genesis 1, God blessed creation. He blessed it. And then he cursed. And now he's trying to restore the blessing. Uh, now, what we have then 
is God is promising. Here's, here's the initial promise. God's initial promise to Abraham. This would be Genesis 12, 1 to 9. He's promising, but you don't have the fulfillment of that promise yet, right? And what happens then along the way, you've got challenges to this promise. Uh, there's a famine in the land uh, in, in point C. And the very land that Abraham went to, he gets there and there's a famine in the land and he's forced to leave that land. Well, what's going to happen to that? And then his wife ends up in Pharaoh's household. So he's out of the land. Uh, God promised him seed, descendants through his wife and now she's in Pharaoh's harem and it certainly doesn't seem like he's going to be blessed in that situation. Uh, and Abraham even kind of screws up and God has to rescue him. Uh, and then he comes back to the land, point D, and now he's got all the, the sheep and goats and, and herd, both he and Lot, and now there's not enough room for both of them. Okay, So he and Lot separate. Uh, Lot gets himself in trouble because he chooses the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Unbeknownst to him, he's in a precarious situation, and now the promise seems to be in jeopardy because Lot, Abraham has to go out at the risk of his own life uh, and rescue Lot. But yet he trusts in God, and God provides for him. And at that point, then we uh, move up. Uh, we're moving up then. We get uh, closer. We get up to Genesis 15. And at this point, uh, this is point what on your hand up on the structure? Uh, this would be uh, point F. What happens then, and we're seeing movement going forward. I'm going to erase this now. What we have for the first time, originally God pro gave Abraham a promise in Genesis 12. But by the time you get to Genesis 15, God transforms this promise into a what? It goes into a covenant. That's right. So we have a promise. And seeing the, how the narrative plot works, you can start seeing the forward motion. You've got a promise given to Abraham, Genesis 1 to 3. And Abraham's been faithful uh, to God to this point. As a matter of fact, when uh, offered, uh, when he conquers the king, these kings that had taken uh, Sodom captive, uh, by his strategy and wisdom, he was able to conquer them, and he's got all this loot, right? Uh, but Abraham refuses to take all the, any of the booty because he says, I don't want anybody to say, the king of Sodom made me wealthy. Uh, I want my blessing to be untarnished so that no one can say it was king of Sodom. I want to be able to say it was Yahweh. It was Yahweh that blessed me because the people of Sodom were these terrible sinners. So he wants this untarnished blessing and so in Genesis 15, God rewards him. He says, I'm your reward, uh, and I will take care of you. And then uh, at that point, Abraham says, well, God, you know, you've been really good at making promises. And you promised me land. There's been nothing but problem with the land. You promised me seed. You know, I don't, still, after all these years, don't have a son. You promised me blessing, and I've just been having nothing but problems ever since I got here. So he said, you've been making a lot of good promises, but I'd like to see something here. It's kind of bold. Well, God tells him in Genesis 15 then, he says, well, you need to look up and count the stars. Um, and he even says, you know, I don't even have an heir. And uh, verse 5, God takes him outside of his tent and he says, look at the sky and count the stars. If you're able to count them, so will your descendants be. And then we're told, this, uh, we get this very important statement in Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord and then God rewards him for his faithfulness. He rewards him for his faith and for his faithfulness. And at the end of the chapter, God makes a covenant promise with him. And what happens is, he, he reaffirms this. In verse 8, Abraham says this, Lord, how can I know? Okay, you, again, you're giving me another promise. How can I know? I'm, I've been believing this. How can I know for sure that I'm going to get the land? 15.8. 
So what happens is in Genesis 15, then God transforms the promise into a covenant. And we have a ritual in which uh, Abraham sees a vision and he hears an oracle. And he sees this vision of a torch, a flaming torch and a smoking oven passing between these animal pieces. God told him he took five animals, cut five animals in half, and a torch and a, uh, uh, a brazier uh, passing through these pieces. And then he says, uh, you're going to go to your grave in peace. Your descendants will, will go down to the land of Egypt. Uh, they'll be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. I'll bring them out of the land of Egypt, and I will bring them into the land of the ten Canaanite nations. And we're told, look with me in verse uh, 17. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking pot and a uh, flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. And on that day, the Lord, what? Made a covenant with Abraham, saying, I'll give this land to your offspring. And then he lists ten Canaanite nations. So what happens is we move from a promise to a covenant. We're going to come back in just a minute and talk about the nature of this covenant. Okay? Uh, but it's gone from a promise to a covenant. The covenant is more sure. Uh, there's, there's more of, a, uh, of an obligation. And the turning point, though, is Genesis 17, where the covenant is clarified. And the covenant is clarified in Genesis 17. If you look with me in Genesis 17, 1 and 2. 17, 1 and 2, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am Lord, I am the Lord Almighty, God Almighty. Uh, live in my presence and be devout. Walk before me and be blameless. Then I'll establish my covenant with you. Uh, Hebrew, you could read it this way. If you walk before me and are blameless, then I will fulfill my covenant promise to you. Now, God had given a promise. He turned the promise into a covenant. And in Genesis 17, 1 and 2, he clarified that if I'm going to fulfill the covenant, there are obligations that you have. You must walk before me and be blameless. Then I'll fulfill my covenant. Okay? Now, Abraham then is put to the test. In Genesis, and here, this, now we're the, the consequence of this, Genesis 18, 19, 20, Abraham's got some problems. He, he lies. He acts in faith. He's got some defects in his character. And so there's an up and down roller coaster at this point. Okay? And then the question is going to be at the end, is Abraham going to meet this condition of walking before God and being obedient? Okay? And then you get to what? The resolution of Genesis 22. And what does God do? Look with me in Genesis 22. After all these things, God what? 22.1, God did what? put Abraham to the test. Now, I've lost room here. God put Abraham to the test. Now, why would God put Abraham to the test? If the covenant was already absolutely unconditional in Genesis 15, uh, we know it was an absolutely unconditional. He says, you've got to walk before me. Why would he put him to the test? Abraham's been on this roller coaster in terms of his faithfulness. So what does he do? He puts him to a once-for-all test. Are you going to be obedient or not? Are you going to trust me and obey me or not? The purpose of putting him to the test is to qualify him that he can pass the test to meet the conditions. And so what is he this, this once for all test? What does he tell him? Sacrifice Isaac. The very, now you've already sent Ishmael away. The child that you've been waiting for all these years that I gave to you, kill him. Okay. Are you going to be more committed to me or to the boy. 
Yeah, you, yeah, it really would be. Now, in that context, by the way, ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, this was typical that you would do. They would typically offer up their firstborn son to the god. You would not want to be in the ancient Near Eastern world in Canaan, the firstborn son. Uh, so part of his culture, that might not have come as a great shock because this is what the culture was. See, uh, But uh, this was Yahweh. And of course, Abraham, whatever we think about the nature of God's test, Abraham passes the test and the angel appears and says, don't do it. Uh, and look with me then, uh, verse, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord, he's, verse 10, he reaches out, he takes his knife to slaughter his son. And you're just almost aghast. But this is how he, he's, you know, even Jesus talked about, I've got to be first, right? Got to love me first. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And you hear Abraham goes, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Because, watch this, what does it say? Because what? Now. See, now I what? Now I know that you fear God. Now, it's not as if God's knowledge was deficient. But the point being rhetorically is what Abraham had done was critical. Abraham passed the test. Okay? He says, For now I know that you fear God. Why? Since you've not withheld your son, your only son. And then God provided a substitute. And then look with me in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven, saying, By myself, I swear, I swear by my own name, because you've done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand of the sea. We, we just saw that back in 15, right? Uh, to make your, your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea, but 17, but you've got to obey. Because you've obeyed, I will indeed, I will certainly multiply your offspring like the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea. Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you what? You obeyed. You obeyed. He passed the test. So here we had the condition clarified, the covenant clarified. Here was the condition. But now the covenant is guaranteed. Why? Condition was met. Genesis 22. And what we see is this. We see this very interesting movement between God's word. In Genesis 15, Abraham expressed what? faith, right? He believed. He believed. But God calls him in 17 to what? To obey. And we've got conditions. 17, 1 to 2. We'll put these up. 18, 18 to 19. Uh, and then 22, 14 to 16. And uh, 26, 5 emphasize the critical element of obedience. Now, that may raise questions in our minds because don't we talk about faith alone, right? But the New Testament talks about we are called to trust in Christ as our Savior, but we're also to what after we come to faith? To obey. And the New Testament talks a lot about genuine faith, what genuine saving faith looks like, right? Genuine saving faith, it starts with faith, but genuine saving faith is going to continue into what? Obedience, which is the mark of what saving faith is. James chapter 2 is going to make the point, how, do I, how can you... Know, how can you you know, you say you've got faith. How, how do you show it? Say, saying you have faith is not just a matter of saying, I believe. James says the way that you show you have genuine faith is what? Yeah, the way that you obey. Matter of fact, Hebrews 11. We refer to Hebrews 11 as the hall of faith. 
But if you notice in Hebrews 11, it's always by faith they obeyed. Over and over, by faith they did something. So you can't separate faith and obedience. Genuine saving faith will always demonstrate itself in obedience. Luther said, uh, if there's smoke, there's fire. And if there's no smoke, there might not be any fire. Okay. So what we have is this, this very important uh, element here. Now, many times, many people are going to look at Genesis 15. We'll talk about this for just a minute. Many people look at Genesis 15, and there's a big debate uh, on Genesis 15. Uh, is Genesis 15 a conditional or unconditional covenant? Okay. And this is an important question because Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed, and Paul picks up on that in the New Testament. Uh, if you look at Genesis 15, many people are going to argue, no, no, the covenant was absolutely unconditional in Genesis 15 because there was no commands given. God just, just gave this covenant promise. And look back with me to Genesis 15 for just a moment. And notice that when God gives the, gives the covenant to Abraham in Genesis 15, there are no commands. There are no conditions stated. Verse 8, if you remember, Abraham said, uh, Lord, how can I know that I'll possess the land? So verse 9 God said, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Verse 10, so he brought all these to Abraham and he split them down the middle and laid the pieces opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds uh, in, in, uh, in, in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Abraham drove them away as the sun was setting. A deep sleep fell upon him and suddenly a great terror and darkness descended him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know this for certain. Your offspring will be strangers in a land that does not belong to them. They'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. However, I'll judge the nation they serve, and afterwards they'll go out with many possessions. But you'll go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. In the fourth generation, they'll return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set, it was dark, a smoking pot, a flaming torch appeared and passed between the dead animals to the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, I give this land to your offspring, from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River, to the land of the Kenites, the, uh, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And he's getting a covenant. He promises the land. You're going to get the land. Your descendants are going to get the land. And he gives a covenant promise. But there are no what? There are no conditions stated, are there? There's no, there's no command stated. So because of that, many people will look at Genesis 15 and they argue, I'm sorry, they argue, this is an unconditional covenant. All right? And so, the, and so uh, in which would seem to fit, you know, the emphasis of the New Testament, we're saved by faith alone, unconditionally. The problem, though, is that if it's unconditional in Genesis 15, why in 17:1-2 would God say, you have to walk before me and be blameless for me to fulfill the covenant? 18, 18, and 19. Look at 18, 18, and 19. In 18, 18, and 19, the Lord says, Abraham will become a great and powerful nation. All nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Verse 19. For I have chosen him so that, notice, he may command his children in his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he's promised. Not only must Abraham obey Genesis 17, Abraham must teach his children and his descendants to what? To obey as well. So that I may fulfill my promise to him. 
Now, why would the, Abraham's descendants have to obey as well so that God's promise be fulfilled? Because the promise God gave to Abraham was not just, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you what? Descendants who will possess the land. And in order for them to possess the land, they have to what too? Obey. Now, if you look at the book of Exodus, book of Exodus, Exodus 4.31 and Exodus 14.31, Abraham's descendants trusted in Yahweh. But then God brings them to Mount Sinai and in Exodus 19 to 24, he tells them, you believed in me, I've redeemed you, but if you want to inherit the land, you must obey. If you remember the first generation at Kadesh Barnea, they believed, but they did not obey, and they got waylaid. Look at Deuteronomy 40 years later, the next generation. He says, you believed in Yahweh, you must obey. And they trusted and obeyed, and they, they got in. So, and then, by the way, if the covenant was absolutely unconditional in chapter 15, what would be the purpose of the test in Genesis 22? If it was absolutely unconditional in Genesis 15, I guess, and I don't want to be irreverent, but if I'm Abraham and it's absolutely unconditional, I'd say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to go with your promise back in 15. You know, if it's unconditional, really, what can you do if I say no? But you get the feeling that something major is at stake here, right? And when he says to him, now I know... And then we have it transformed from simply, I'll give you descendants, to I will indeed bless you. What we have is it moves from a promise, from a covenant, to an unconditional covenant. The covenant becomes unconditional, but it does not become unconditional until 22. It becomes unconditional. Doesn't Paul parallel this in Romans 4, where he says, you, you, by your belief, uh, you get righteousness? That's right. That's right. That's right. But what happens is, and that's an excellent point, and this is what we, what the folk, and this is the absolute point. Romans 4, Paul is all over Genesis 15, 6, isn't he? But you notice, Paul is going to come back in Romans 8 and talk to those that have believed and tell them, now that you have the Spirit, you must what? You've got to obey. He's got to, he puts these two things together. He will segment them to make the distinction between justification and sanctification. But he ultimately puts the whole package together and is going to make the point, if you don't walk by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh, you're really not one of Christ. You really did not come to faith. So he's putting this together. The other thing is, too, there's something new about the new covenant, isn't there? We, 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 you know, it's a new covenant. There's something new. And what's new is not... Is not uh, here's what happened. Under the old covenant, Abraham believed. Then he was called to obey... And once he obeyed, Abraham was declared to be an heir. Right? That's under the old covenant. Abraham believes. Genesis 15. He's told he has to obey. Genesis 17, 1 to 2, 18, 18 to 19. He's put to the test. And once he obeys, because you obey, you're sure that's actually down to verse 18. Because you obeyed, now you're an heir. In other words, this is, by the way, James 2, isn't it? Now, under the New Covenant, under the New Covenant, we're called to trust in Christ, right? Romans 4. But Romans 8, we're told, now that you've trusted in Christ, God is giving you the, is giving you the Spirit, and the purpose of the Spirit is to help you what? Obey, right? Now, here's the difference. Under the Old Covenant, 
you, they, they entered the covenant by faith. They stayed in the covenant by obedience. And if they demonstrated the obedience, then they were declared an heir. Here's what happens under the new covenant. The moment we believe under the new covenant, we get something they did not get. What do we get that's new under the new covenant? The moment we believe, we get the Spirit, right? And what is the purpose of the Spirit? In order to what? Empower us to obey. What happens in the new covenant? Let me move this so you can see. Under the new covenant, the declaration of heirship, which is back-ended in the old covenant, the declaration of heirship is what? It's front-loaded right here. That's exactly right. And that's the point. The moment that we believe, we are declared an heir. See? Uh, now, Paul's going to make the point. He makes the point right here in Galatians 3. Because you trusted in Christ, you're already an heir. You're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8. But he's going to say in Galatians 5, you need to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh, because if you walk by the flesh, you will what? You, Roman, uh, Galatians 5, you will not inherit so what we have, we still have inheritance. Oops, Galatians. But what happens is in the old covenant there was an all or there was a there was a not yet only. See? Here you are, you believed, but you're, the declaration is not yet. Under the new covenant there's an already not yet. There's something new. What is new about the new covenant? There's an assurance that is given at the front end. If you believed in Jesus, there's an already. And the already is this. If you've trusted in Christ, you're already justified positionally. You're already declared an heir. Now, the New Testament, though, makes the point you need to what? Test yourself. Under the Old Covenant, God was putting Abraham to the test. God tested Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 8. He, took, he put them in the wilderness for 40 years to test them to see what was in their heart. He put Abraham to the test to see if he would obey. We're told in the New Testament you need to what? Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. In the New Testament we hear about these trials. James even says the trials have come for the what? Testing of your faith to make sure you're not simply a hearer but a doer. Because the danger is I say I've come to faith. How do I know my faith is genuine and sincere? Right? How we know God gives us the Spirit and then because we have the Spirit we obey and we, there still is a not yet, right? There's something still to come and we are called. We've got to obey. This is the evidence. This is what, one of the things that gives us assurance. Now, I can have an already assurance. I know I've been born again. I've got the testimony of God in my heart. But what's one of the major things that gives assurance? I look back and I see my life has been what? My life has been changed. If my life has not been changed, what does the New Testament say? You might need to go back and ask the question, did you really come to faith? Um, and so this is, this is what's new about the New Covenant. Uh, now, interesting. If, you read, if you're reading the book of Genesis from, from a Jewish perspective or an Old Testament perspective, where's your focus going to be if you're reading this from an Old Testament perspective? Genesis 12... 15 or 22? Where's the focus? 22, right? Because they had to demonstrate their faith by obedience. 
They believed in Yahweh in Egypt, but he brings them to Sinai and says you've got to obey to get into the land. When we read Genesis from a new covenant, Christian perspective, where do we put the focus? We put the focus where? On Genesis 15, because we know that as a New Testament Christian, the moment I believe, I'm declared an heir. And this is what Paul does. This is why Paul puts that focus on Genesis 15. Uh, interesting, book of James, what does James do? He puts the focus on both, doesn't he? Because James will talk about you're justified by faith, Genesis 15. He also talks about you're justified by obedience, Genesis 22. And James says there's actually two justifications. There's a justification up front positionally when you believe. There's also a future eschatological justification by obedience. And what's the key to make sure you test, test, pass both tests? Spirit. See, the Spirit does that. So under the New Testament, see, we've got this assurance that the Old Testament believers did not have because we've got the Spirit working in us. But that doesn't mean that I say, hey, you know, I came to faith in Christ. I've got this insurance card. Say, I got this insurance card. I signed my name on this insurance card. I can live like hell now the rest of my life. I can do anything I want to because Christ has died for all my sins, right? The New Testament says, I'm not sure that's the kind of heart. I'm not sure that's the kind of heart that's reflecting genuine saving faith. Yes, if you've got genuine saving faith, all your sins are under the blood. But you don't take the grace of God in vain. You don't trivialize what Jesus did and you don't view the cross as a get-out-of-jail-free pass that means I can do anything I want to. Uh, there was an article in Christianity Today a couple of years ago that put it well. The author was ironically tongue-in-cheek dealing with this very same question. And the name of the article was this. Will God forgive me for the sin that I'm about to commit? Will God forgive me for the sin I'm about to commit? And it was contemplating people that say, hey, all my sins are under the blood, so... I could have a great time. I could do anything I want to. And I just want to have the assurance I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm intending to sin a big one here. And I just want to know that when I get done, everything is going to be fine. And the author makes the point, the New Testament raises questions about is that the kind of person that reflects somebody that's really, truly come to grips with their sin and has really come to faith in Jesus. Because the New Testament makes the point, sure, we sin, no question. But the genuine believer is going to what? Fight against sin. Try to put to death sin by the power of the flesh. Do we give in to temptation on occasion? Absolutely, sure we do. But it's two steps forward, one step backward. But we get up and we go ahead. It's not, look how much I can get away with. This Isn't this great? By the way, that's one of the reasons why the world looks at Christians and has got a real problem with Christians. Because in some cases, some Christians misunderstand the grace of God. They view it as anything goes now. And there are some people that refuse to hire Christians. There are some people that refuse to have do business with Christians. Because Christians say, you're supposed to forgive me, right? So that means I can do anything I want to and you're just supposed to obligate it to forgive me. Isn't the gospel that, yes, God has forgiven us and now, by the power of the Spirit, we're called to what? Higher standard, right? We're called to make God look good. And the New Testament asks that question. You know, what, what is your faith? Is it merely profession? Or is it showing by the power of the Spirit that your life is being transformed? 
Okay, we've got just a couple minutes here, and uh, we already had a couple of questions, and I appreciate the, the segue. Well, let's go ahead and open up this for more. It's a good discussion. Yes, dear. Can someone come to faith, obey for years, and then move into rebellion? Yeah, in the New Testament, it's going to warn about that. It warns over and over about that. You've got in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the person that is his, apparently his father's is dead or his stepfather's dead or his father's dead and now he's sleeping with his stepmother uh, the guy professes to be a believer Paul refers to him as a so-called brother because the guy professes to be a believer and he says we need to exercise church discipline and make him choose he's going to have to choose between the world and Christ uh, and so you've got situations like that the guy apparently in 2 Corinthians apparently the guy repented because of the pressure uh, book of Hebrews warns about apostasy, warns about slipping back. And he talks about those that have been enlightened and, and fall back. And Hebrews chapter 10 ends by saying, we are not of those uh, that uh, 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 shrink back to the destruction of our souls, but we are those that persevere uh, to the end. Uh, and uh, Christ talks about uh, persevering to the end. Uh, uh, Paul talks about testing yourself to see if you're really in the faith so there's this warning over and over and over in scripture Uh, it can happen it happens to some don't let it happen to you now the question that people ask is well was he a genuine believer or not and the New Testament views faith not as something that happens at a static point in time okay now you may have a crisis moment in which you're like myself walking along in paganism and sin, totally oblivious to God, and in one moment, one evening, I got confronted, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to hell. What am I going to do about this? I better keep coming back to this Bible study. Uh, And so for me, I went from darkness to coming to faith in a relatively short period of time. For other people, it's a more gradual process. But the New Testament never views faith as what happens in a single moment alone. Okay? Matter of fact, the Gospel of John, the one book that talks about saving faith more than any, it talks about those who believe, the one who believes. In Greek, the expression, he who believes, is what we call a present participle in Greek. Present participle denotes a continual dynamic action. It doesn't present saving faith as happening at one point in, in that being it. Writing your, your name, your John Henry, on an insurance policy. You may begin to believe at a point in time, but it presents faith as a dynamic that grows and progresses. And by the time you get through the Gospel of John, first half of the Gospel of John, he who believes, and then Jesus says, if you believed in me, uh, he speaks to those who believe, he says, now if you abide in me, then you're truly one of my disciples. So you've got this movement from initial faith to uh, abiding faith or continuing faith, and then it begins to blossom at one point into obedience. Uh, so there's this, there's this dynamic. Uh, now, at what point along the line would you talk about somebody, you know, being saved? Uh, there's a confidence. If somebody has believed, there's this confidence that God's at work in their life. Uh, but the New Testament is going to make the point that uh, uh, you've got to, on a daily basis, continue to respond to the work of God in your life. And that's the basis that we have assurance. Uh, for those that, that persevere, there's assurance. If somebody slips back, they may be a genuine believer. God will, work, will, will enter in and discipline them, and he can return them to the path, right? 
But if somebody slips back, suppose they have, have professed faith and they've been around for a year or two, coming around to the Bible studies, getting involved, even doing service, and then at one point in time they just bail. And they just go to a life of, of, of wanton sinfulness. They may come back. God may work at their life. And you want to watch what's going on and pray for them because God, if they are one of His, He will rain down on them to turn them back. But if somebody turns their back and 20, 30, 40 years later never returns and denies Jesus, there's no assurance given for that. Um, they may be a genuine believer and God could turn them, but they've lost any assurance and we've lost any assurance too, haven't we? Because the test is, is there's got to be, and, and this is the work of God. It's not what we do. It's the work of God in their heart. And uh, the danger we have is we focus only on faith. Okay, faith is, we're saved by faith alone in Christ. But that faith is going to come with the Spirit. And the Spirit's at work in our life. And Jesus never called us to believe in Him just to have a, you know, a license then to sin. Matter of fact, we're told to go into the, God, go into the world and make what? Disciples. What does the word disciple mean? Follower. He doesn't say go into the world and make believers only. Faith begins the thing. We're saved when we believe. But we're to move from simply believing to also obeying, right? By the way, it might not be a bad idea. We often ask somebody, are you a what? Believer. A believer. It might not be a bad idea to ask, are you a disciple? Because that is giving what? That ties both of those together. And it helps to remind us, yes, I've trusted in Christ, but now I also have to make sure to what? To obey. Yes? Uh, this is an observation. I always, even before this class, I always thought that there is a um, sort of symmetrical, in this sense, uh, between Adam and Christ. Mm-hmm. Adam had a choice. He actually exercised that choice to disobey, which seems to be the very first or, or a catalyst in this, in this mm-hmm. diagram. Yeah. And here comes Christ, who also had a choice, but he chose to obey That's right. by dying. That's right. And there's obedience there too, isn't there? Right. And so that kind of represents the sort of macro picture of what happens in this particular structure of in, 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 That's right. in, in terms of the whole humanity. That's right. But Christ himself also said, you must take your... Uh, cross That's right. every day. That's right. So he just seems to talk about micro scale of right. personal life. Now, I'm to follow Christ's example. Right. And this is where this whole thing is. Uh, uh, what ultimately is happening is in Christ, God is calling us to believe. And because we believe and we get the Spirit, He's now calling us to obey Him in the world in which we once disobeyed Him. Uh, when you come to faith, you, you know that Jesus is my Savior. I can't believe what he's done for me. I love him. And then as we continue to grow in Christ, we realize I'm to show that love and channel that love through what? Through obedience, see. This is the, first John, this is the love of God that we what? Obey his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome because we love him. This does not deny salvation by faith alone. But it makes the point that genuine saving faith is... Yeah, it's never alone, is it? Okay, we're at time, and I've gone over five more minutes. My students on keep to that. So, God bless you, and uh, we will uh, be in the last section of Genesis next week.